You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Hi folks and welcome to the second episode of Let's Talk Photography. This episode is for November 2013. I'm your host Bart Bouchotts and joining me today we have a fantastic panel. Uh, first we have Mark back with us again. Hi Mark. Hi Bart. Thanks um, for having me back. Oh, delighted. Um, you're from... Mark Twin- who? <laughs> <laughs> Mark Poe. Actually, how do you pronounce your surname properly? Polly. Polly. So I'm going to pretend it says A-U-L-Y. Exactly. That's okay. how you pretend. Yep. Uh, and you're from Twin Lakes Images. Just join people at twinlakesimages.com or switch your mark on the Twitters. That's correct. Thanks. Uh, then we also have two new voices. I was going to say two new faces, but it's not a video show. So two new voices um, to add into the mix. First, we have um, Antonio Rosario joining us from Switch to Manual at switchtomanual.com. Um, welcome aboard, Antonio. Hi Bart, it's great to uh, have you um, have me on your show. Yeah, thanks del- for thanks for inviting. Oh, I'm delighted that you you gave your time to us. Yeah. Um, Mark, you're way over the west coast. Um, Antonio, you're over the east coast. Um, I'm over in Ireland. And then finally, Alison is way over the west coast again. Um, Alison Sheridan from the wonderful NoSillaCast podcast over at Podfeet.com. Welcome aboard. Hey. Hey, Bart. Thanks for having me. Uh, I figure part of my role here is going to be to ask the dumb questions. Wait, that's actually a really important role. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody's got to do it, you know. In fact, it even fits into our topic for this week. And the topic is simply, how do we we get better at photography? Um, Probably one of the greatest joys about photography is that you can never know it all. And that the more you do it, the more you learn. And even after like decades, you're still learning more, which I think is really cool. No, I know everything. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll be paying opposite (laughs) roles. <laughs> oh, guru of the photography. That was too good of an opening. <laughs> so does, does anyone want to, to kick off or, or, or will I throw something into the mix? Well, I think that uh, everything we say today, I bet, at least I'm betting, we're predicting, that everything comes down to shoot, 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 shoot more. Um, get, get out and shoot more. Um, but then there's going to be variations on on that. But I, I think for me, the the one thing to do to get better is shoot as much and as often as I can. So, so the ten thousand hours theory of learning anything. There you go. Can can I piggyback onto that? Uh, I'll say, you know, Mark's saying shoot, 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 shoot. I'm going to say edit, 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 edit. Share, 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 share. Yeah, do everything. <laughs> do everything. No, 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 no. Just because... share a little bit. Actually, that's a fair point. Share intelligently is, is actually better. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you want to you make your pictures better. Show only the good pictures. Take all the 10,000 pictures that you shoot and boil them down to two or five. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sure. Now you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose actually... Wait, wait I got to go edit. I got to go remove some stuff off of Flickr. Give me a minute. <laughs> ORM minus ORF. <laughs> no, it's... I suppose... It's very hard to judge your own work, so you want people to comment, but if you post 500 shots a day onto Facebook, who who is going to take the effort to look at those and give you useful feedback? Not me. Yeah, not me either. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm not getting paid for it anymore. I used to work as a photo editor at a at a, a, a photo agency in the 80s and 90s, and they paid me to look at you know 50,000 pictures a month. 
And that's great. I'll do it for, you know, for a salary, but there's no way that I'm going to look at somebody's, you know, 150 pictures, 200 pictures, try to, you know, pare it down for them. So they have to make that decision themselves, I think. So that means you're very practiced at the art of picking the the, the wheat from the chaff. Uh, yes, I'd like to, I, I am very practiced it, and it came at, you know, quite a time expense, but, uh, you know, I can look through pictures very fast. It's probably part of the um, upside of having worked at a photo agency, I'll look at pictures like this, like, you know, go through them like that and say, okay, that's a good one, you know? And they say, well, why aren't you looking at all these? It's like, well, I don't need to look at all these because this is the good one. So I'm going to look at that. <laughs> Even from the thumbnail, I guess you, you can tell if it's going to jump out at you. Well, especially from a thumbnail because I used to work with 35 millimeter slides and they're essentially thumbnail in size. And so I'd have to look at a sheet of 20 pictures, which is how they were presented to me, and then take a loop, and I would only loop the pictures that would stand out at that size. So, yeah, it, it helps to be uh, that helps. We've developed a phrase um, from Bart explaining this whole idea of only showing your best or your best, or your best photos. Uh, we actually call it barting your photos when you go through <laughs> and you get rid of all the bad ones. Um, one process I do to do that, and, and I'm definitely on the more amateur end of the world uh, uh, for this panel, but I'll go through... Uh, you know, 200 photos from a, a couple of days of vacation and uh, and I'll get rid of, say, 30 percent of them. And then I'll set it aside for a day and I'll go back and I'll delete another 30 percent. So unlike you, I, uh, because I don't do it professionally, I get emotionally attached to my photos, you know, like, oh, I, I must have these. And so but I can delete 30 percent in two separate days and not get emotionally attached because now I am looking for the best of the best. Well, Allison, you're actually you're it's interesting that you do that because I've stopped looking at my pictures when I came back and shoot from a shoot because I don't think I can look at them objectively. So I think waiting the couple of days mm. is, is a really good idea because then you're just, you know, I think you're so wired into the shoot that you just came back from. I, I don't think you can look at them objectively. And you do have to look That's at them objectively sometimes. So um, I've discovered that by accident recently because over the summer, maybe I'm too much of a sticker, but I have this thing that I want to work on a calibrated monitor in a dark room and Ireland is quite far north so it actually doesn't get dark until like nearly midnight in the summer and so in the summer is also when the best weather is so I take lots of pictures and have no time to edit them and now that I'm in the winter I'm now editing stuff I shot three months ago and I'm finding it an awful lot easier to just be honest and say no rubbish not sharp I know it was a wonderful subject and I know it was really nice <laughs> you composed. it's not sharp it's going in the bin and it, it's so much easier when a little bit of time has passed to just be brutally honest and say rubbish rubbish ooh that's nice Hopefully another method I figured out. Another method I figured out is uh, I. I know we don't talk tools, but I use Aperture, where I can take um, photos in a in a project, and then let's say I I keep fifty of the two hundred, hmm. but only like. 10 are actually any good that anybody else would want to look at, but I'm still emotionally attached to the rest of them. What I'll do is I'll put the 10 in an album inside the project and then I share that album. And that way I haven't thrown them away. I still have that one that's fuzzy, but darn, it would have been amazing if it had been in focus, <laughs> but I still only show the good ones. And I find that people think I'm really good at photography and I'm not. I just know how to get rid of the junk that looks horrible. Do you think well, Allison said that I was going to say, that's not really an aperture. I mean, you can do that in aperture, but you can do that in iPhoto. You can do that in, uh, I'm sure you yeah, can do I'm that just, in Lightroom. I'm just saying that's the naming convention is all I was saying. But right, ah. right, yeah, any tool. You could do it in a folder too. True. True. Do, what do were you going to say, Mark? Sorry, Mark. Yeah. I, I was just going to say, Allison made a comment about having difficulty editing or deleting because of emotional attachment. I think probably too there's a, uh, there's a bit of a difference between, say, somebody like Antonio who's doing a commercial shoot 
and is going to get paid for giving the best images to his client and, and doesn't have any emotional attachment to the subject. Um, I'm finding now that I'm shooting more pictures of my grandson that I that I delete a lot less pictures, even though I don't share as many, because <laughs> I have that emotional attachment. So I suppose that's part of it too. Is is uh, keeping things around that you're not going to share, but you're also not going to delete. Um, do do people on the panel tend to use star ratings to help, you know, separate the good from the bad, or is that something that I just do? I do that. I, I go. What I'll go. I'll go through and uh, and throw out things that are obviously. I'll go through quick. Throw out things that are obviously bad. Uh, then I'll go through and and pick out the the. There's usually like a series one two three sh- uh, shots that are real similar that I think yeah I'm going to do something with that and I'll pick out the best of the three and give it maybe a couple stars just so that it stands out in the file and then if I and then when I go back and edit it. If I really think that it's uh, a good image that I'm willing to share, I'll you know give it a four or a five so that I know, yeah, that's that's an image that I that I'll let other people see. I use it a little bit, uh, but I, I I was trying to think who I was talking to. Um, oh, it was with Jim Sewell on my show where we both use three and five stars. We don't use one, two, or four ever, ever, ever. It's like why do I want to put a one on it? That's what you hit delete for, right? Two, that's just a little bit better than crap. So you delete that one. So, And then what's the difference between three and four? Well, okay, so what's four for? So it's three and five. Yeah, okay, okay, so I've, I have three means tolerable, so I'm going to keep it. Four means worthy of sharing on Flickr. Five means worthy of my portfolio of like, you know, my 20 or 30 best shots. So there's almost no fives in my thing. And then two means I'm going to keep it because it's, a family member who is important in some emotional way, but it's actually a rubbish photo. But I'm going to keep it anyway. <laughs> and one is generally for stuff like if you shoot a bracket of HDRs, the actual individual brackets are useless on their own. So they get a one star. They oh, then get stacked with the combined HDR, which gets a three, four, or a five star. Oh, that's interesting. I, 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 you know, I haven't really thought about it that much, but I, now I'm realizing I don't use one and two stars generally. Um, it's usually three, four, and five. And, and Bart, like you, I, uh, my five stars are the, the ones that like are the prime pictures, my prime pictures. And everything else is three or four, depending on it, I, I, different contexts, actually. Um, like if I'm working for a client and I want to give them pictures, you know, there will be three, four, and five star ratings in the group of pictures that I, I might give them. Um, but those three, four, or five stars may not relate to when I'm – doing my own editing for my own pictures. It might have a different context. So um, that's when I sort of add things like flags, um, you know, pick in, in Lightroom. You can add a flag to a picture uh, and maybe colors as well, color labels. Um, I use those for sorting the pictures. But fives, fives are just always, like anything that's five, that's the stuff I show on my website. Yeah. Um, actually, just what I think of it, actually, I, I think myself and Alison are Aperture, and I think I remember right that both of you guys are Lightroom. I'm Lightroom, and if you know me from Twitter, I'm very vocal yeah. about it. And my my quick two senses. I mean, I love a- Aperture more. Uh, I just don't like that Apple is treated like a you know a bad stepchild. And um, I feel more like a photographer when I've used Aperture. Um, but that being said. Lightroom's processing has advanced enough that um, I think my files tend to look a lot better, and 
and here's hoping that uh, you know Apple comes out with Lightroom Four soon. I mean, uh, Aperture Four soon. Aperture X, I guess. Yeah. If the yeah, naming convention yeah. is still going. Yeah. <laughs> but right now, for for making money, I'm using uh, I'm using Lightroom and 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 enjoy it because I think the processing is good. The interface is not great, but. Uh, that's what I use. So by pure accident, we now managed for the first two shows to be exactly balanced 50-50. <laughs> um, the, the, the reason I ask is because... Do we well, hear Ken and Nikon? Oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm Nikon, Mark's Nikon, you're Nikon. No, so that, I'm, I'm Canon. You're Canon? Ah. Yes. Of course, yeah. yeah, the fact that you have the same lens as me because we buy uh, Sigma lenses doesn't mean you have the same camera as me. Right. Right. <laughs> sorry. Um, but anyway, so the reason I was going to ask is, so in a nice crutch, if you're having trouble with the emotional thing of deleting is in Aperture you have this concept of rejecting a photo. So it vanishes from your UI, but it's not actually deleted. So you can actually say, show me the rejects, and they're still there. And you can also say, delete all my rejects, which is probably a good idea for disk space. I'm guessing there's, a, there's an equivalent in Lightroom. Yes, there is. You can, you can mark things as deleted or flag them with an X, hmm. and they gray out and will not show up in certain searches. And I actually do like the idea of keeping around rejects um, for well, a couple of reasons. Is when I come back from a shoot, it's I'm not getting paid for getting rid of the rejects, so I, I tend to just look for the selects. So I tend to keep yeah. a lot of rejects because storage is cheap. Um, but I found with some clients, like I do retouching on the side as well, and I want to see their rejects because sometimes there's information in those rejects that I can use. Um, for helping to put another picture back together, so I like a like color to keep or something, a color, a background, you know, like oh, someone's wow. in a someone's in a kitchen and and I need to use um, a part of a the refrigerator that's in the background and the reject has that part of the refrigerator and I can actually use part of it. So, so you're actually um, breaking up the bad photos for spare parts. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so again, it's it's a different context. You know, it's like that part of my work. I'll I'll want to see the rejects for myself. I, I just tend to hide them so that uh, I don't see them. And then maybe someday when my, you know, two terabytes of storage or whatever I've got now, you know, starts to get a little tight, maybe I'll get rid of the rejects, but uh, not for the See, moment. I would have gone the exact opposite on that is, is um, I'm carrying a, a 250 gig uh, aperture library around with me all the time and I'm not a professional photographer. And so on a, on an SSD, I want to get rid of everything I possibly can. So the last thing in the world I do is hide a photo from myself that's still taking up space. Cause you'll forget it, of course. Yeah. And then you hide yeah. 500 of them and suddenly you've forgotten a lot. Actually, something yeah, that certainly me having out. external storage would make a lot more sense. <laughs> that actually caught me out slightly because Aperture is very clever in the sense that you have this concept of um, vaults for backing up your photos to. And if you delete a photo from your real library, it's taken out of your vault, but it's put in a little folder called deleted photos from on the same external hard drive. And all of a sudden, my external <laughs> hard drive was full. <laughs> and I was like, but it's the same drive. It's the same size as the drive my real library is right. on. And my real library has lots of space. Why? And it was because of these deleted photos that simply have been safely put aside for me. So I just deleted yeah. them. <laughs> They're trying to protect us from ourselves. All in all, that's probably not a bad idea sometimes, especially uh, on a backup, uh, I guess. I guess the thinking is this is a backup. Why on earth would we make it easy to destroy your backup? As long Maybe. as you know it's doing it. Yeah. But the, problem, the problem is we often don't know it's doing that. Now, in fairness, it was very obvious when I went through the drive, there were two files. There was the actual vault. And there was a folder called deleted items from the name of the vault. And I was like, okay, well, I see what's going on here. Yeah. So I nuked that. I have enough trouble remembering to empty the trash in Aperture Bart. I can't imagine <laughs> if I had that going on too. I'd be doomed. Um, so, okay. So we think it's important to take the time to, re to reduce our photos to a manageable amount so that when we share them with people, we're not overloading people. 
But Absolutely. How yeah. do we how do we do our best to actually get valuable information back from people? Do we just throw it on Facebook and have everyone say like and think we're great, or what do we do? For me, it depends on the kind of photo. Um, I think from you, I've learned that uh, Flickr is a place for, uh, forgive me, photo snobs. Uh, <laughs> but it's about the photo, not about the subject. So if I want to, you know, I got a really cute picture of my dog, that's going to go on Facebook. If I've got a, uh, an amazing photo that I'm really happy with the light or something like that, that's what goes on Flickr. So and on then Facebook, Twitter's just the for silly stuff. Right, right. It doesn't cat, matter if cat, it's in focus or not. Too. And cat sure, sure. Got to have this. Yeah, I got a new dog. I got an old cat, so the cat isn't making many of the photos lately. How does the cat feel about suddenly becoming second fiddle? <laughs> She's got opinions, as you can imagine. <laughs> um, something I don't. Know, something that makes me slightly cranky is even on Flickr, despite the fact that Alison says it's full of photo snubs, you get an awful lot of people who just post nice shot, and. I don't know about you, but I find that the most useless commentary in the world. It is, and I, I, I'm going to say that I'm guilty of that sometimes because, you know, in some way, you want I want to acknowledge the image, hmm. and yet I, I don't always have the time to sit there and say, well, I, in part, I know, you know, you've, you've criticized my picture, you've criticized, you've given me really good feedback on my pictures on Flickr, and I actually appreciate that. Oh, um and I know what you're saying is that there's sometimes like I, I like a picture and I want to just acknowledge it with something other than a little thumbs up icon that, you know, like maybe Facebook has. And I just want to say that, you know, if someone's asking for feedback, though, it's like, can you tell me about this picture and what, you know, I can do to make it better or is it good enough? Then I might take the, I will, you know, if it's someone I know, I'll take the time to write something. But if someone's just posting it and I want to acknowledge it, I'll do something like nice shot because I, I don't really have the time to write paragraphs about stuff. Uh, what I might do is favorite it too, because that maybe will indicate to the person that, uh, that whose picture it belongs to that there's something more to that picture than me just saying nice shot. I put it in my collection because I think it's really good. I, I, so, I mean, I, I mean, you say that I write nice comments, but I tend to just make it a sentence. I mean, my yeah, comments but are generally thoughtful and stuff. You know, <laughs> nice <laughs> shot. Really like the composition. Those are cool colors. That would be I a typical that, Bart comment. I think, though, that Bart, you are a good example of um, how I would, how I think you can uh, get good critique. I think that if you um, if you go to Flickr and you just throw it into a group, and uh, that group, you know, just does, for instance, does a badge or something that says somebody looked badges. at it, they're, but, but they're really, yeah. Well, no, and that, but the. You could put it into somewhere and know that people have looked at it, but you're not really getting any kind of critique. Um, I think that I, I sort of back up Antonio, which is if somebody at least stops long enough to type nice shot, then I, then I know that they probably they looked at it long enough to say, you know, I'm going to take a few seconds to type. That, help, that gives me feedback that, well, it was good enough that, that they took a few seconds anyway. But if you really want constructive criticism, uh, I think one of the things you do is you either find a group or you find some people that you can share that with. For instance, I think you and I uh, 
critique each other because mm. we take the time to we take the time to do that. I have a few other people on Facebook where it's or uh, excuse me on Flickr where it's the same thing that um, we've sort of you know even if it's not uh, multiple sentences if even if it's just a sentence or so we at least have some rapport where we'll take the time to look at each other's pictures and maybe give some some useful comment. And I, so I think the the way that you get critique on Flickr or say Google Plus is the other place that I do that a lot is to give it. Uh, if you if you take the time to look at other people's work and give some sort of constructive critique or comment on what you like about it or whatever, you tend to build up a rapport and get that back from them. And I think that that, for me, that's been one of the ways that um, that I've been able to improve my shooting is to is to go ahead and put myself out there and take the time to talk to other people so that um, hopefully they'll reciprocate in the future and take some time to talk to me about my shots. Yeah, I sort of look at Flickr as being a boomerang. You know, whatever you put out is what you get back. And so if all if, if all you do is just click like on a hundred shots a day and do nothing more, then you're probably going to get nothing more back. So. so I guess that gets back to the the subject of the show, mm. um, how you improve your photography. So you guys use Flickr to get critique. And a lot of people wouldn't look at posting their photos as, I want people to tell me what they like or don't like about the photo. Well, I, I could be in really a proud sense, of I that photo. I, I think um, in a loose sense, because I, I don't think we expect people to, to reply with that absolute garbage, you silly idiot. Well, I mean, <laughs> no, but I mean constructive, <laughs> constructive still. But I, if not everybody would necessarily do that with Flickr on purpose. I think actually um, the groups have a lot to do with that in, in Flickr because, I mean, I, I, I have my certain niches in photography, like railway photography is my big thing. And I have found the most useful thing to find groups of people who are genuinely interested in getting better. And there's, there's about 500 million railway photography groups on Flickr. And so far I found about three quality groups which have sort of acted like magnets for people whose opinion I value. Mm-hmm. And so after joining, say, 30 groups, I've left 27. And mm-hmm. I'm now left with these three quality groups that, that I find I get value from. So I actually find I'm intimidated when I go to Flickr and I see a photo that I think is really beautiful. Mm. I won't comment at all, Bart, because I don't want to be the guy that goes, nice shot. But I also don't know why I like it. I look at it and go, wow, it's really pretty. And yeah. I give the person no feedback, which I think is worse. Yeah. Okay, you but know, you've you just hit on something. something. Oh, no, sorry. Go on. No, go on. I was going to say, even just saying that I like this picture and I don't know why is, is, <laughs> is no, really, is a great I mean, if you were telling that to me about one of my pictures, I know that it hit you on an emotional level that you just don't have words for. And that's actually quite powerful if you think about okay. it. Um, when someone says something to you and like, like I, I enjoy something, I just don't have the words for it, that is almost beyond good. Um, so that's the kind of feedback actually I would like to see. If someone said that, I said, you know, I'd be thrilled by it. Yeah, I would actually I, have to say the same. If someone says, you know, I really love this picture. There's just something to it. You're like, oh, cool. That magic was, thing is here. That might work gonna, for the first five agree. photos I did. <laughs> I was <laughs> going to agree, though. If that's, <laughs> if that's all you ever see me post, though, you, oh, that's okay, fine. You know, maybe you could you could you could do an interpretive dance about how much you like <laughs> well, the pictures and post that for us. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it actually hits on an important point. So. One of the, I think it was Scott Bourne who always said it, that if you want to be a good writer, you have to read. 
If you want to be a good photographer, you have to look at pictures. And probably one of the most important questions to ask yourself is, I like this. Why? And it's not always easy. But if you say, look at 10 pictures a day that you like and try to figure out what, what works here and what doesn't, it's probably highly valuable. I would not disagree with you there, Bart. I mean, looking at, I think that's probably one of the reasons why I don't say I, 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 I consider myself a pretty good photographer and having spent all that time looking at literally hundreds of thousands of pictures in my early career in a photo editor, I, I'm, I, I'm certain had a lot to do with, you know, how my photography is now having the benefit of looking, you know, at other photographers work for so long. It's, I mean, people have said nice things about my Flickr commenting, but at the root of it, it's a way for me, by setting myself the guideline or rule that I have to say at least one sentence, the reason I do that for myself is to make myself think. And so if I get into the habit of every day commenting on at least 10 pictures, and I've thought about at least 10 photographs every single day, and I think it's valuable, and I guess it's a suggestion that perhaps people could try. It may or may not work for everyone, but I, I find that a very useful way to, to force myself to think. Bart, I think now that you're saying that, I think I'm going to try to do that next time I comment. Because as you're saying that, I'm realizing, yeah, when you say nice shot, it's like, okay, nice shot. But, but when you say something about it, like I, I knew that you took time to look at that picture. Like you, you took a, your eyes roamed over it, and you, you understood what's going on in the picture enough to write down a sentence for it. So I think, I think I'm going to try to hold that to myself too next time I comment. Cool. Oh, pressure's back on me now. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think actually, so be the community Flickr or be it some other community, it, it takes actually a bit of effort to seek out a good audience whose opinion you value to actually get useful feedback. So I guess don't be disheartened if you post your photos on Flickr and you get radio silence. And I, and I think if, yeah, and I think if it's not Flickr, the other thing is um, finding finding people that uh, you value their opinion and know that they will tell you the truth. Um, I, I've done that with, I mean, the people that are on this panel have looked at images of mine and given me truthful comments that I found useful to be able to either improve that image itself or maybe make the image better the next time. And I think that. Uh, by being involved, say, on a Google Plus community or something like that or, or some other photography community, finding people that you can you know, feel comfortable with, share your images and get some critique and get some information back, that's the other way to get that critique. Because it, it, it may not be popular to say, but not every opinion is equal. And so it actually is important to evaluate the person giving you the opinion before you weight the opinion. Yeah, I would agree with that. In- I mean... You know, it depends on the community that you're visiting, too. So, yeah. Mark, I'd be curious um, about your experience getting critiques on uh, Google+. What, what communities have you sought out that have helped you with that? Um, there's, there was one in particular that was set up specifically for critiques. It was called Behind the Lens Critique Group or something like that. I actually kind of escapes me but um so it was set up and said this is the purpose of this group you know please join and do it like all critique groups even on Flickr, i find that um the participation is really important and and uh sometimes you can put stuff out there and nobody will comment you have if you're actively participating then you can usually get some comments back um and i 
I found the Google when it was active and when it was working well. I found the Google Plus community to be better than something on Flickr. I don't know why. Um, maybe it was just more active people. Lately, and when I mean lately, it lasts several months. I've found that uh, part, my participation has tailed off, and uh, I don't see as much stuff going into the stream. So, but I but you can find some specific uh, groups and communities that are tailored towards uh, image critiques, and then you're seeing more and more groups tailored towards specific specific kinds of photography, like a landscape or people in my area, Pacific Northwest photographers, that kind of thing. Um, but getting into those groups and being active and telling people that you're interested in hearing comments or critique tends to be the best way to, to get information back from people can I, and can participating. Can I, a cautionary tale uh, from me, and I'm not trying to be paranoid or anything, like, but places like Flickr... Um, Google Plus, and especially in my my opinion, is 500pics.com, is that what I'm seeing happening is it's a group of photographers critiquing other photographers' work. And photographers are then sort of tailoring their work to be critiqued by other photographers. Um, and I, I think I see this more in 500pics, where the pictures begin to start to fall into a repetitive pattern of a, a certain look and a style. And this idea of making your pictures, you know, good enough that other photographers are going to give you good critique of them, I think runs into the possibility of a dangerous situation where you're not doing your own creativity, where you're doing something to please a community um, that is, you know, a, a bunch of other photographers. So, I, I like, I've sort of moved away from 500 pics that way because I started looking at the stuff and I was like, the pictures that seem to rise to the top, they all look the same to me. And the ones I really go for are the ones that are people are uploading, you know, there's like a whole section for you to look at what's coming up, you know, what's coming up and coming. And it's just a bunch of junk, but there's some really nice nuggets in there. And so I just, I, I say be careful about that because you start to tailor your pictures for other photographers and I think they'll begin to look alike. So and that would stymie some creativity. I mean, I want to see, you know, different styles of pictures. What what is inside of you that will will come out if another photographer, you know, doesn't criticize you? Actually, that's a really good point because I, I've seen a sort of a microcosm of that. Not even within just photography as a whole, but even within like types of photography, where you see these little isolated communities. Now, I would see it in railway photography, um, where literally entire nations begin to shoot alike. There is, I can actually tell you there is a style of Spanish railway photography. And mm. I can look at a picture and say, that's going to have a Spanish username or it's going to have a Spanish geotag. Mm. And it does. And that worries me slightly. Um, and so one of the groups actually that I'm involved in is explicitly global. And they're notorious for not just clicking accept. It's a moderated group. And if you get one photo in there a week, you can be happy. But they insist on being global. And it kind of forces you not to get stuck in a niche. Um, and also you have these things like a railway photographer will be obsessed with the fact that you, you the front of the train must be lit. And mm. if you only listen to railway photographers, you will miss out on so many really cool photographs, which everyone else on the planet thinks is fantastic, because actually headlights coming out of a dark front of a train can actually be really cool. But then the rail nut can't see what loco it was or whatever. But mm -hmm. so what? You're a photographer. So I, I do think you have to be careful that you don't end up being, I don't know, artificially guided into a certain way, I guess. I don't know how best to 
to say that, but it, it is definitely a danger. Yeah, it's sort of like an, I want to say inbreeding, but you know what I mean? It's just, <laughs> Actually, yeah, I guess. It is an inbred, yeah. an inbred style of photography that, you know, if you look at, you go back to some of the, I hate to say go back to some of the masters, but, you know, you, you look at the people who preceded us. Is it the right word? I always get that wrong. Preceded, proceeded. Anyway, people came preceded, before us. Preceded, is it? <laughs> and, and you see all these different styles of, of photography, and we want to, we want to create a community where every kind of style can come out and have a life of its own and not just get pigeonholed, you know, for, oh, well, that's too dark or that's, you know, not enough uh, depth, uh, not enough detail in the shadow. Like, not every picture needs to have detail in the shadow for crying out loud. Yeah, I've seen know? some amazing silhouettes, which are probably exactly the opposite <laughs> of detail in the shadow. Yeah, I mean, you know, black. There's something nice about when I used to print black in my photography. Sometimes you wanted black. You wanted the paper to go black. You didn't want to see the stuff in that shadow. So, you know, you get the you get the gist. Like we want to we want creativity to blossom. We don't want it to get, you know, sort of directed by the masses. I think the best example of that Antonio is the um the HDR craze with uh, Trey Ratcliffe. I mean, he does take some spectacular images, but now it's like a third of the photos I see are, are extreme HDRs. Mm. And, and and the people who follow him, they, you know, want to do... Uh, well, I want to take of... pictures just like him, too. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, though, I mean, that's actually kind of a good example because Trey has a very definitive style of HDR. And some people confuse Trey's style of HDR with HDR. Right, right. And I take a lot of HDR shots, but I would like to think that you could put mine next to Trey's and his are going to be better, but also... I think you could tell which were mine and which were his. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can tell Trey's photos a mile away. And yeah, because I, I, I hate these religions where people say, oh, no, HDR is terrible. <laughs> and it's like, I won't look at an HDR shot. It's like, the chances are you have and you just don't know. Um, actually, this, I'm going to use this as an excuse to, to um, what's the phrase, tangent or whatever, into mm-hmm. something else I found really useful. It's completely unrelated. Um I think, Antonio, you said it, that we have been preceded by many, many photographers before us since 1839, if memory serves, mm-hmm. when John louis de Guerre first figured it out. Um, I actually, one of, the, one of the things I have found the most useful in sort of developing my enjoyment of photography is there's a chap called Jeff Curto who's a professor of photography in the College of DuPage in Illinois, and he gives a university class called the History of Photography. And he puts his entire lectures online. It's, it's an audio recording taken in the classroom, and he, the video that accompanies it is his slides. So it's really like you're in the room, and he is giving you this talk on photo history. And so if you go to photohistory.jeffkerto.com, you can literally follow along as if you were at the University of the College of DuPage. And every two or three years, I redo the entire course. Mm-hmm. And every time I get something new out of it. And well, I, I guess one of the times it was most valuable was when someone tried to have a go at me because I'd used the HDR technique. And I was able to say, well, actually, you'll find that since the early 1800s, people have been trying to expand the dynamic range. I was able to, you know, cite chapter and verse of every photographer in the last 200 years to figure this out. And I don't know, it's, I find it really useful. Well, I was going to say that, you know, I've had I'm, I'm the benefit of having gone to school for photography. And I've been doing photography since I've, I think I was 12. Um, so I went to high school and college for it and worked in the field. So anyway, I had the benefit of uh, the photo history background, I had to take photo history classes. Um, and it is something I would 
highly recommend. And I've, I've seen his courses. I think I've downloaded them from iTunes. So I don't know if they had the slides available, but certainly the audio. Um, and there is something just fantastic about learning where, you know, rather than just buying a DSLR and going out and, you know, following Trey or any of these great photographers who are, are very popular online, I say, you know, follow them great, but go back and, and see where where they're coming from. I mean, there is nothing better than studying the history of, of this great medium. It's full of surprises, actually. It really doesn't go the way you think it will. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the great surprises, everybody's making this big deal about digital getting rid of film and blah, blah, blah. All you have to do is go back to the, I don't know, the 30s. Hmm. When when thirty five millimeter cameras first started coming out, um, actually you could go before that. Uh, when the um, when when uh, Kodak came out with the the brownies, the the single shot brownie cameras, people were saying, "Oh, you know, this is going to be, you know, they're going to take away the work from the 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 you know the four by five photographers, larger format photographers, and stuff like that." Like we're going through this stage. We go through the stage in photography every you know every time there's a new technology. It's almost like there's a phase. The first thing is they dismiss it as a toy. Oh, this new technology, right. it's not for real photographers. And then it becomes, oh my God, they're going to ruin photography. There's going to be no work for real photographers. And we've been through the cycle so often that it's kind of funny almost. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think uh, it's just funny to learn about that, to, to go back and say, well, you know, it's happening again. It's, it's very much a deja vu all over again. And, and even, I mean, one of the things that surprised me, because we all have these bizarre visions of uh, this might be a European thing, but we all think of the Victorians as being these horribly stuffy people because they all look so serious in their portraits. The bit that we don't know is that their head is actually clamped to a stand because they have to sit still for 60 to 80 seconds. <laughs> I'd look pretty severe and stern too if I had my head physically clamped in place. Recently, they actually I... had them in clamps? Yes, yeah. a clamp that would fit the back of your head so you wouldn't move. Yeah. I saw one of those in an exhibition at the uh, uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art. They had a whole thing on Civil War photography, and they had the clamps that, that, that kept your head locked into position. But I've recently seen some pictures, uh, I think they were f um, from that time period, where people were smiling. They were like grab shots from the outside. It was like, wow, who are these people, these Victorian people smiling and having fun? I'm trying to remember her name. The problem I have with the history of photography stuff is I'm awful at remembering names. <laughs> so I remember their work, but I don't remember the name. But there was a lady, she was an aristocrat in Britain, who, when all of her kids were growing up, her husband bought her a camera. And she took, like, when we think of the picture of Charles Darwin, you know, it was sort of the, the black background, the side on with the giant bushy beard. That's one of hers. And Herschel and all of these people. And she had a style that was really, really different to what everyone else was doing in Victorian England. It was just much more free. And these people all look a lot more human when, when she took their photos, just because they weren't so staged, I guess. Part of what making even just your own photography look better is, is not staging uh, a picture and, and, and getting the human aspect of somebody. Just to bring it back to the future. Yeah, I <laughs> was going to say, we, yeah. back to the present. <laughs> back to the present. Um, I, actually, to sort of, if you don't mind me switching gears a little bit. No, no, bit, by all means. But, uh, you mentioned at the beginning I'm part of a, um, a workshop uh, partner and I started workshops called switchthemanual.com. Mm -hmm. Our whole our whole plan here is to try to teach people to sort of relearn or learn for the first time the manual controls of their camera, you know, the, yeah. to be able to set the aperture and the shutter speed and understand those things. And we we're talking about like how to make better pictures. I was like thinking, well, that's a perfect, um, you know, sort of exercise. Like, you know, people start turning off the automatic parts of your camera and start learning how to use the manual parts. You'll find yourself creating pictures that you probably never thought that you could create. 
Yeah. And I guess the, the nice thing with modern cameras is it's not an on-off switch. It's not either full auto or, or full manual, thank goodness. You can sort of wean yourself off by saying, I, I think I'll take control of the white balance today. And actually, I'll take control of the aperture to, or of the um, ISO as well. And actually, I'm going to put the camera in aperture priority mode, which means that I'm in charge of the aperture and the, re- the camera will do the rest automatically. Right. It's a great way to, to learn these things, not be overwhelmed by all the, um, the, the uh, aspects of a camera. You can take it at a time, one at a time. We call them baby steps towards manual. It was one of the things that we talk about in our, in our course. You want to take a baby step towards manual, you know, let the camera do some of the heavy lifting for the shutter. Or let the camera do some of the heavy lifting for the aperture, and you can control the rest. But we, we came up with this idea that people could create better pictures if they just knew what the camera was doing. You know, part of, part of, you know, you talk about making better pictures, and I know this is not a gear show, and we're not talking about gear, but, like, it's, you, there are tools that you need to learn. You know, it's great to buy a camera that's automatic and does all this stuff, but spend a day or two reading the manual. Spend some time um, understanding the, the mechanism, you know. Well, I will, Antonio, I will... though, I, I, I got to interrupt there as being, again, the lower-end person here. Um, I can read the manual, and I, I understood exactly what aperture priority meant. I read the book. I, I understood what it was. I knew uh, that a, a bigger number meant a smaller aperture. I knew that a bigger aperture meant a shallower depth of field. And I could never figure out how to do it until I went on a photo walk with Bart, and he said, try this. Now change it like this. Now turn this like that and watch what's happening to your photo. Uh, so reading the manual, sure, it's good that I understand it intellectually, but I could not apply it until somebody did what you're doing in your photo workshops. Yeah, I, 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 would, I, would, I would agree with you entirely. I mean, it's not, you know, it's like reading a manual for a car. You're only going to understand how to go to use the car if you go and drive the damn thing, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, necessary but, it does help but not sufficient. Order. It does know to help, you know, where to put your foot on the gas and where to stick the key in. You know, you, you need to know some basics. But, yes, the, the, in the field, you have, to, yeah, you have to go out and do that. But part of that is understanding. It's not just saying, like, why do I, you know, this creates less depth of field. Okay, great. Well, why do I want to use that? Like, that's, yeah. that's the part. Why, why do I want less depth of field? Why do I want a faster shutter speed? Why do I want a higher ISO? Like, those things, the, the manual is not going to teach you that. At all. Um, By the way, I'm hoping to fly to Ireland again sometime and then learn shutter priority. <laughs> well, so I would. I would. Ireland, we'll, I would we'll change the dial on the top of your camera by one click. Is that it? <laughs> these are, would, these are some pretty, pretty expensive uh, photo lessons that you're taking, yeah. Allison. I'll invite you out to Brooklyn. It's halfway between uh, wherever you are in Ireland, and we'll we'll have a good time in Coney Island or in Red Hook. <laughs> There you go. We'll Actually, teach you that. Since we've sort of our conversation has wandered to the field, how's about we hang around in the field for a while? Um, something that I find useful is, in order to learn what something does, to actually give myself an artificial constraint. And I think the most recent example of this was I bought myself a ver- a, w- the widest angle lens that wasn't a fisheye, so it was a 10 millimeter. And the reason I bought it was because I like doing skyscapes and the constellations are surprisingly large because I would have thought that 18 millimeters, yeah, no problem, wasn't working. I actually needed more room on the sky to get my nighttime shots. So I bought the lens for that and then I went, I wonder what else this lens can do. And I actually spent a week with just that 10 millimeter lens on my camera and nothing else. And I made myself do even macro style shots with it. And I was absolutely amazed at how much fun I had with that lens. And I would never have thought of it if I hadn't forced myself to. I think, and I was going to actually 
on what we were just talking about, but also what you're talking about here. Uh, if you, what the way I find it easiest for myself to learn one of these concepts is to limit myself to that concept for a while, but constrain myself. I said this la- on our, on the last episode when we were talking about composition. It's easy to get overwhelmed by the subject if you if you look at all of composition, or as what we're talking about. In uh, just a moment ago, about all the different kinds of settings or manual settings, getting out of uh, out of auto mode, you can overwhelm yourself. But the best way to learn is to limit yourself. To say, okay, today I'm gonna I'm gonna use just this lens and take just pictures with that lens and see what it does, or I'm going to go take shots and I'm going to adjust the aperture from high to low just to see what it does. And I think that. By going out and concentrating on a particular thing and uh, giving that to your giving yourself an assignment, say this is what I'm going to work on. That's the best way, at least the best way I've found for myself, of learning that particular thing. So sure, read it in the book, but then go out in the field and actually practice it and totally concentrate on that. Don't let yourself get distracted doing other things uh, or shooting other styles, go ahead and try that thing out in the field. Um, that's For me, that's the best way to actually figure out what that's going to do. And then and then I get used to it, and then I'll move on and do something else, but I'll know what I can come back to then. So that's like the scientific process, very one variable at a time. Yes, I guess so. And I guess we, we I mean, we've just, both of us are just focused on lenses there. Uh, but I don't think you need to be that specific, because something I found really interesting I mean, ultimately, photography is about light, right? It's, you're, you're painting with light, I think I heard someone describe it. So what I actually found really cool was to pick a place and to photograph that same place at as many as possible different times of the day. And I was actually, I found myself very surprised at how different a place feels depending on how the light is. Well, I would have to strongly agree with that. <laughs> And especially making the making the plan to come back to the same place several days in a row or something like that, because um, the light can change so much over the course of, you know, one day you come back, it's sunny, and then it's overcast, the place looks totally different. Um, I actually love to shoot on overcast. Uh, but, um, you know, w- limiting yourself to, like, a single location is tricky, too. Mm. Um I guess it depends how widely you define location, because I'll say to myself yeah. things like the canal, which is <laughs> technically 100 miles from end to end. Now, I'm obviously not going to use 100 miles of it, but it's, it's not quite, you know, this square meter here. Well, you know, I like to think that I've done I've done the vast majority of my photography within like 10 miles of where I live. Um, so there is something to be said for going back to the same place over and over again. You can find so much, so many new things, but... Um, well, your muse was the botanical gardens for quite some time, if I remember right. Well, that's actually how, yeah, that's how I got, and that's how I got hired. In fact, I got hired because I found my pictures on Flickr, by the way. Hmm? Good to know. <laughs> yeah, so one of the reasons why I maintain as a pro, I maintain a Flickr, a very strong Flickr presence, because I don't know who's going to find me. But uh, I lived several blocks from it, and I would just go, you know, twice a week just because I love the place, and I would just take lots of pictures, and, and I would just keep. And the, the botanic garden is a very small space. I mean, it changes year, you know, throughout the year. So there's yeah. so many different things to do. But it really is a teeny tiny area. Um, and it's amazing how much um, I could probably do a whole career of my work based just on the Brooklyn Botanic Garden if I wanted to. Um, I think it's less than six acres, maybe ten acres. 
No, that's wrong. It can't be. But it's really small. Sorry. It'd be big to have as your garden. But, yes, <laughs> but it would be small to have in your when, world. <laughs> when I lived near there, I felt like it was mine. Especially, you know, when I started working for them and they hired me to shoot their calendars, like I would get to go on on a Monday, which is the day they're closed. Ooh. And I, I did have the place to myself, which was uh, quite a quite a pleasure. So, so that would, in theory, be fifty-two Mondays, and I bet <laughs> you there were fifty-two very different Mondays. Very much. One time, I had gone in there on a after the a, a severe snowstorm. Um, I think we had like three feet of snow or something like that. And I was the only one making footprints in, in, in the place there. And so I got these great shots of this, like, snowscapes uh, with no footprints in them, by the way. And yeah. uh, so, you know, visiting the same place, you know, over time, uh, if it's possible, like not if you're on a trip or something like that, but if you've lived near some place and going back to the same place over time, it's amazing what you can do over that, over that time period. The light changes, the, the, the weather changes, um, I, I, it's a great way to explore your photography. It's a great way to explore your equipment too. I've noticed. Yeah. I know Mark's waiting for me to say what I always say to him is the only reason he takes good photos is he lives in such a beautiful area. So <laughs> we, we have to give credit to mother nature for some of the, <laughs> I, I live in Los Angeles. My, yeah, I take pictures out my window. Bart, you've seen them. Oh on, yeah. Uh, on uh, on Flickr, I just you know the sun sets out my window, and he's like, "Great!" I'm like, oh, "I can't take full credit for anything. I just <laughs> took the picture." New York has sort of deprived you of a natural landscape, but you make such use of the skyscape that nature is putting on above. I mean, I, my favorite photographs of yours are often those amazing skyscapes. Yeah, thank you. There's there's just what you know. I'm looking to my left right now. It's not very nice today, but uh, that's, you know, my, my viewport is my window, and it, it looks out on just Brooklyn. It's not very interesting on the bottom, but in in the mixture, mixing the bottom with the top, it becomes a nice, uh, yeah, cityscape that, you know, I don't have to travel to Bryce Canyon to, to get these beautiful, uh, beautiful um, you know, sunsets. Well, I think there's beauty everywhere if you look hard enough for it, which I mean, it sounds a bit wussy, but I, I genuinely think it's true because I know, Alison, you always say that I live in a beautiful place, but I live in average Ireland. I don't live in <laughs> spectacular Ireland. I mean, Ireland has spectacular mountains, spectacular cliffs, spectacular forests. I live in average Ireland. It's got fields, trees, flowers, some things. But You've got I, green. That is, that is definitely an advantage. You have There's some. a color I can't find. I mean, maybe some mold or something, but uh, you know, California, we, we favor brown, tan, those kind of colors, you know? Yeah, but you have I mean, I've even got a of blue I, that I almost never yes. see. That's true, but well, we don't have clouds in our sky, so I, I don't get beautiful sunsets either. On occasion. Really? Very, very really? Rare. You don't have clouds? No, we have like cloud. Oh. <laughs> like the whole sky will be a cloud, or maybe there's one little tiny cloud. I've been known to take a picture of the sky with one tiny, tiny little cloud and Twitter, tweet it out saying Stormwatch 2013. <laughs> kind of well, I was amazed when I spent, I think it was three weeks I spent in Los Angeles many years ago. And I remember hearing this bizarre weather forecast. There is a 20% chance of weather today, by which they meant there's going to be something in the sky that's not blue, but only a 20% chance. It does actually make the sky not very interesting. I mean, I, we do have on occasion a nice sunset, but it's it's nothing like I mean, you know, you go to Hawaii, you can't not have a good sunset by definition. There will be one every single night, um, but we don't have that here. But we, I I shouldn't really complain. I mean, I've got birds of paradise growing like weeds in my backyard, and they're one of the most spectacular flower around. I was just going to say, macro a is, is a great way to find interest in somewhere that initially looks pretty boring. 
I, I think, isn't it? I mean, isn't it? Uh, it's always better somewhere else. I mean, before we were recording, <laughs> be, before we were recording, Bart and I were just lamenting how terrible our weather was. That it was, we only had sort of a sort of a spring and fall, and it was always wet and gray. And uh, but but then Allison says things like, uh, you know, it's beautiful up here, so all the pho- photographs turn out well. I think it's it, you always want to be somewhere else taking pictures and and forget to look at what's right in front of you in the area you're at. So. I'm gonna. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was gonna actually. I was gonna say I'm gonna put in my two cents for, for for crappy weather. I mean, um, (laughs) you know, going out and shooting in in the like I'll go out short of rain. Um, Like when we had the uh, the Bruce uh, the Bruce um, the Kelby's photo walk. um, I was a leader in it in Brooklyn, and in my page that I listed for everybody, I said short of a hurricane, uh, which is unfortunately since we had hurricane sandy last year i said that but short of a hurricane the walk is on you know mm-hmm. you'll shoot with you'll shoot with one hand you'll hold an umbrella in the other hand um i i don't like limiting my time to shooting to only good weather days in fact i find it sometimes depending on what i'm shooting especially when i was at the botanic garden like i would prefer to shoot on overcast days because you get better color saturation the shadows open up i mean there's so much more that you can do so um you know, don't wait. Don't wait for those. You know, perfect days. I mean, it's great to shoot on them because you're not, you know, carrying an umbrella. But it, it's more fun, can... but maybe not more productive. Yeah, it's more fun. But I find that I find like some real satisfaction in going to some place. It's empty. Like there's a there's a great cemetery near me. It's a, one of the oldest in the country called Greenwood Cemetery. And there's a lot of famous people buried there, and it's a it's a big tourist attraction not a lot of people show up but there is a tourist thing there but you go there on a on an overcast day and there's nobody there and i make some of the greatest pictures some of my my most favorite pictures i've made i've made there on overcast gray dismal days now it's a cemetery so there's there's that (laughs) well i mean you 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 chose a a very dramatic monochrome style for those and there's literally there's there's not a person in your way there it was as if you had the place to yourself which now that you mentioned it, you did, I guess. Right, I did. Yeah, there's there's that for it. But, you know, again, it's this thinking of, you know, um, not how to say this. Like people say, don't go to shoot. Don't go to shoot on, on a sunny day at noon because the shadows are overhead. Like go and shoot on at noon because nobody else is shooting it, you know. <laughs> well, try it anyway, because you never know what you're going to come home with. Right, right. But you can um, always you can always work something wherever you are. And I actually think some of my favorite photos I've gotten Actually, I, w- I won't say in bad weather. At the moment when bad weather stops, there's that very short gap mm. between bad weather and good weather where it's just turning, and that can be some of the most spectacular photos. I, I don't know how common a use of term is, but in the railway community, they call it stormlight, where you still have the black cloud on the horizon, but the sun has come out, everything is soaking wet, so the colours are as saturated as possible, mm-hmm. and you have a sunlit foreground, these black, black clouds in the background, and that is, I think, some of the best photography weather. But invariably, you will get wet. And I was just going to add to that that the, some of the greatest skies are before or after, at the edge of storms, and, and so we just get some really cool light, some really cool colours. Yeah. Yeah, see, I don't have any of this. I got blue sky, sunny. Ugh. It's, it's horrible here. It's going to be 78 today. We really today. feel bad for you. Well, what we a really terrible feel. place to retire to, Alison. <laughs> all, all, my, all my points are proven, Mark, right? <laughs> it's not my utter lack of talent <laughs> or, or skill. 
We've been running well, for 55 minutes, so how's about we wrap up by every, if I get everyone to throw in one sort of final parting thought? Um, unless someone else wants to round out the current thought. I think of a thought. <laughs> well, you're asking me, you're asking oh, me to oh, think. I've got mine. You've got your one after you. All right, so uh, the best way to improve your photographer or your photography is to hang out with a good photographer. Yeah. Somebody better than you. It's sort of like don't play tennis with people who are worse than you. Play tennis with people who are better than you. Actually, that's just really good advice for everything, isn't it? <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. Anyone else have a thought or will I, will yeah. I jump in? Yeah. So, uh, Go ahead, Mark. I, I, the thing that uh, for me that I think improved my photography the most was when I started printing my photography. So when you show it online, it looks a lot different. It looks a lot brighter. Um, but when you actually print it and start uh, framing it, matting it, showing it to people, uh, I dramatically changed what I was shooting and how I was shooting because uh, I'd start thinking, what's this going to look like printed? Huh. Can, I, can I add something to that? Um, Absolutely. The, the, the thing about the printed picture is that you as the photographer are in control of how large or small or what the viewer's experience is. Mm. When we put the pictures only online, we have no idea of how the viewer is going to look at that image from different color screens and whatnot, whatever sizes. They might look at it on an iPhone or an iPad or a you know, television set. I think when you print something, you're, you're telling the world, this is how I want you to see my picture. So I, I'm all for that. Plus the, the longevity and archivalness of things about printing. But uh, well, the, the tactile nature of it, being able to yeah. hand it to someone, it's kind of different. Bring it into the third dimension, you know, it makes it an object too. But uh, I, I think I want to add uh, what we talked about before. For me, improving my photography was really about looking at pictures and not just photography. Um, I found I find myself going to the museum quite often to look at paintings and illustrations and, and just other art in general um, that really helps me uh, improve my photography and just take think about different ways of, of shooting, you know. It's actually kind of weird because when you have a photographer's eye, if you look at some paintings, you'll actually find that they use like you know soft focus and shallow depth of field in paintings. Yes, yes, it's a very interesting way to look at that. You know, the old masters, especially. Um, you know, it'd be cliche and thinking of Rembrandt, but you know, Rembrandt lighting was. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just incredible to look at a picture of the old the Dutch masters and how they used light and how they used ambient light and how light was bouncing off the walls creating and filling up shadows. I think it, one of the greatest things about looking at that is trying to figure out how to do that for, photographically. Yeah, I guess one of the advantages painters have is they are not confined by the laws of physics, so you may not actually be able to do their light. <laughs> right. You can try. It's you good, can try. Good, oh, yeah. Well, good, um, good with artificial light, I guess you can, you can tweak nature too. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess my sort of final thought would be one of the most valuable things I've found is to find a group online that's actually geographically located. So a local photography group so that you can actually take those acquaintances out of the digital world and actually arrange. I mean, something I do with, with a few local photographers is once a month we go out and we have, I say dinner, I mean pub grub, cheap, you know, cheap food and a pint of beer on a Monday evening once a month. And it's probably some of the, A, the most fun and B, some of the most useful time because there's something about real-world interaction that as much fun as Flickr is, the real world is always better. I'll second that one. I'll third that. <laughs> Real people, huh? Like yeah. outdoors and talking to people? Yeah, meat huh. space. It's an odd place. 
I, I remember that, but it's vague, <laughs> vague memory. Mm, indeed. Anyway, thank you very much for your time, folks. Um, I guess we'll go out in reverse order. Alison, do you want to tell people where they can find you? Sure. Um, I do the No Silicast podcast, which is a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Macintosh bias. Um, it tends to be a lot of Mac stuff, iOS stuff, that kind of thing. But we very often veer into the photography realm. And uh, unlike this show that is focusing on uh, more techniques, Bart is actually going to has often talked about more technical stuff. And I think uh, next week we're actually going to be talking about the virtues and of uh, using keywording in Aperture, which I am completely against. And he's going to try to convince <laughs> me yet again is a good idea. Third time's uh, a charm. So you, <laughs> you can find that podcast over at podfeet.com. Thank you very much, Alison. Antonio, where do you hang out digitally? I hang out many places. First, I spend so much, way too much time on Twitter at uh, at am rosario. Way too much time, by the way. And um, uh, my my regular business is amrosario.com. That you'll find a, a generally a blog and where I post my pictures. And my workshops. Part of um, what I'm doing in the city is creating these uh, photo workshops. We're at switchtomanual.com. Me and my partner Tom are trying to teach people to learn how to use the manual settings of their camera again. So get back into, uh, you know, sort of back the old days. Cool. Mark? Um, on, <clears throat> excuse me. On Twitter, I am SwitcherMark, and I spend a lot of time there uh, harassing Antonio and Allison and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. Um, I, my work can be seen at TwinLakesImages.com. Uh, I post uh, the better images there. I also am doing some blogging uh, and uh post my calendar to tell people where I will be exhibiting or showing. Cool. Um, I'm going to be sticking links to everyone's Twitter feed into the show notes as well as your Twitter and so on and so forth. Um, Also to mention that we have a a Flickr group for the podcast. Now, this is only episode two, so it's taking a little while to get going, but please join us over there. Get stuck in. Um, The link is over on the show's website, which is lets-talk.ie. And instead of giving you lots of names, I'm just going to tell you, go there, and there's links there to all the stuff related to the show. Um, I've been your host, Bart Bouchot. You can find me at bartb.ie. And until next time, happy snapping. Listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Hi, I'm Tim Robertson from the Tech Fan Podcast. And I'm David Cohen from the Tech Fan Podcast. And we wanted to take a moment to tell you about the Stoplight Network. Stoplight is a community of podcasters. We're a group of people who are passionate about podcasting, and we're looking for people who have either existing or new podcasts that might be interested in joining us. So check it out at www.stoplightnetwork.com, and while you're at it, check out our show, The Tech Fan Podcast, part of the Stoplight Network of Podcasts.